Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. I am so excited about today's interview. This is just spectacular. Meet Beckett Cook. He's a very well-connected gay fashion set designer who has traveled the world. He's attended Oscars, Golden Globes, Emmys. He's rubbed shoulders with Hollywood's A-list actors. But one day he saw a group of Christians with their Bibles open in a trendy coffee shop in LA and engaged them in conversation. One of them invited Cook to church and for whatever reason, he went and checked it out. That Sunday, God encountered him in an amazing way that instantaneously changed his life from that day forward. In fact, God gave him a vision of holiness, and in a moment, Cook knew that God was real, Jesus was real, eternal life was real, and that homosexuality was wrong. So he shares his testimony about his coming to faith, and then I ask him about common questions that people ask him today. He still works as a production set designer, and so he's very much spends a lot of time around lots of people, many of whom are non-Christians, and so they ask him, can you be a Christian if you're gay? Isn't it unfair you don't get to have a partner for the rest of your life? Are you straight now that you're a Christian? Are people born gay? And Cook answers these questions confidently and biblically. Last of all, I ask him about his plans for the future, and he talks about how he's just about finishing up his seminary degree at Biola at Talbot School of Theology, and how he wants to launch a ministry calling the church back to a biblical sexual ethic. He's seen a lot of churches that have forsaken what the scriptures say in an effort to fit in with the culture, and he feels very passionately that that there's no reason to compromise here, and that his story and his unique perspective can really strengthen the church. So I think you're really going to enjoy hearing him. He's just a very enthusiastic and energizing person to listen to. And so without further ado, here is interview number 18, God Woo's fashion set designer from Gay Lifestyle with Beckett Cook. First of all, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Restitutio. Of course. I'm glad to be here. I thought you could start by just sharing your testimony a little bit and give our listeners an idea of who is Beckett Cook, where did you come from, and how did you meet the Lord? I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas, and I was raised in a Catholic family. A very lar- I was the youngest of eight kids in a Catholic family, and... I was raised in Jesuit schools, elementary school and high school. And growing up as a kid, I, you know, I went to all, I went to mass every Sunday and I did all the, the stuff that you have to do. And, but I never felt a connection to God. I never felt that God was real to me. And it was very vague. Um, as a kid. And on top of that, as a, as a kid, I probably in sixth and seventh grade, I started to realize that I was attracted to the same sex. Just guys in my class, I, I started to realize I was attracted to them. And it was confusing for me because, you know, at that time, 
homosexuality wasn't celebrated in culture like it is today. And it, it was very much, especially in Dallas and Texas and in the Catholic Church, and homosexuality was, was something not to be spoken of. And so it was very difficult for me because I had this kind of inner conflict of this is what I'm starting to desire, but I can't speak about it because, you know, I'll be ostracized. And I had this kind of hidden secret life and I didn't know how to navigate those waters. And then when I was young, I had a couple of close friends who I went to school with who were gay. I mean, at a very young age. And so I did have these kind of people I could I talk to. And even though we never, we never said the word gay, we never identified as gay. It was because I also thought that, it's not, you know, I didn't think that this desire I had for the same sex was a lifelong thing. I thought it was just like, oh, I'm, I'm just going through this phase and right. I'm attracted to guys and like this will eventually go away. And, and I never thought of it as permanent when I was young. And but I had these friends and then I ended up in high school, I ended up having a, my best friend in high school was gay and we came out to each other my junior year of high school. And that was kind of a seminal moment because when we came out to each other, it was like this moment of, for lack of a better word, it was this kind of moment of liberation and we could confide in each other. And then we started going out into the two gay bars in Dallas and to clubs in Dallas, just like wild clubs. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, I saw a lot. You know, we started doing that, I, I don't know, when I was 15, we we were going out to gay bars. And I, I don't even know how we got into these bars. Somehow we got in. It was a very interesting experience because when we first started going to these clubs and bars, I felt like, ah, like I'm finally home. Like I'm finally with my people. Because of that inner struggle I had as a, as a kid, because of same-sex attraction, when that happened, when I started seeing other people out at clubs and bars, I was like, oh, like, these are the other misfits in the world that are like me, and now I can have this community. And so it felt great, actually, and I dove into it. I dove into that world, and and I still, in high school, I kind of led this double life. I still had, you know, my kind of other friends who I did things with who didn't really know much about about my gay nightclub life. But then I also had my best friend who I would go off, you know, I would go, basically I would go to like Debbie Top Balls, you know, in Dallas, <laughs> a very conservative Debbie Top Balls. And then like after everything ended, I would meet up with my best friend and we'd go to a gay bar at like midnight, you know, uh-huh. until three in the morning. And so I really kind of felt like I had this outlet. I felt like I had this kind of community or home or people like me finally. And after high school, I didn't date in high school. So after high school, I went to college. I went to a college in Texas that was very uh, liberal, progressive, secular, humanistic. And and the professors at my college were definitely not theists. They may have been agnostic or atheist, but they were very much opposed to... You you could just sense it. You could tell and, and you could sense that there was not there was not a Christian on the campus. I mean, it just was, it just felt like that. And that was fine for me because 
I was feeling more and more detached from God. And, and especially because of my burgeoning sexuality, I felt like this is the right place for me. And by the time I graduated, I was, for all intents and purposes, an atheist. It's right. not an agnostic. I, I just felt like the whole God story, the Bible, was a myth. I thought it was a fairy tale. I thought it was just for kind of not very smart people who lived in the South or something. You know, I just thought it was, like, not real. <laughs> and, again, that fit well with my sexuality because after college, in college I was still slightly in the closet, and okay. um, I was out again in college to some close friends, but for the most part, I was in, in the closet. So your family still didn't know? My family didn't know. I spent uh, my junior year abroad in Vienna. I remember in Vienna, I was still in the closet. One of my classmates asked me if I was gay. I was like, no, no. And um, so there was still this kind of internal struggle. And after college, I, I moved to Tokyo for a year because after college, I didn't know what to do with my life. I was either going to go to law school or medical school or dental school. I was accepted into law school and to, to dental school, and I but I didn't apply to medical school because, anyway, I, it was a long story. But I needed some time to figure out what I was going to do with my life, so I moved to Tokyo. And that's where my identity as a gay man really became solidified because while I was in Tokyo, one of my roommates was this girl named Lisa, and her best friend in Dallas was this guy named Mark. And Mark came to visit us in Tokyo. He came to visit Lisa in Tokyo. And so he stayed with us for a week. And Mark and I ended up falling in love. And that was kind of the turning point for me in terms of coming out to my, I came out to my family. I came out to everyone. After that experience of falling in love, I felt totally free to come out to everyone. My mom cried. My dad kind of took it well. He he wasn't that upset. And I'm really thankful for this, but they they were actually handled it in a really um, good way. And they, they didn't, they weren't reactionary. They weren't, uh, they didn't go crazy. They just were kind of very calm about it. And and they knew that there was nothing they could do about it. But all they could do was pray for me. And by this point, most of my family members had left the Catholic Church and had become evangelical Christians. So I was the last holdout when it came to Christianity. And so anyway, so after Tokyo, the relationship with Mark lasted a year or two, a year and a half. And then we broke up. And it was, I mean, it was devastating to me. It was like oh, one God. of the most devastating things that ever happened. And then I moved to LA to pursue acting and writing. And I had some close friends in LA from high school who had already moved out here. Most of my friends from high school either moved to New York or LA and I chose LA. And so I moved to LA and I got in with a group of amazing, smart, intelligent, Ivy League, you know, kids who all moved here from the East Coast, and they were all kind of like the movers. And they were the, the next generation of movers and shakers in Hollywood. And right, and a lot of them ended up becoming – a lot of them are super famous now. And, uh, and one of them, in fact, is Dustin Lance Black, who wrote the movie Milk and wrote that – there was a series on ABC recently, like this, this past week, called When We Rise, that he wrote for television. It's a four-part series. Wow. But it's interesting. It's about the gay movement. 
So anyway, my friends and I, we all believed the same thing. We all believed in making it in Hollywood, and we believed in finding the one or a true love. And that, those were the kind of the two things that were going on in our in our lives. We were always it was always about like who just sold the latest screenplay and who just got the five picture deal at Fox and who just fell in love with their next boyfriend. And it was always kind of like not a competition, but it, it was definitely like there it was there was a lot happening all the time in terms of that. And and these again these were like these these people that my my closest friends were just whipped smart <laughs> and they still are i mean they are wow. one of the smartest people that i know and they were very well connected and and we would end up going to every premiere every party every hollywood party every we go to the oscars and the grammys and the golden globes and to all the parties and the vanity fair party and the governor's ball and all these things and so for years and years this this was my life I was pursuing my stuff. I was writing stuff. I was doing a lot of commercial. I was a commercial actor, and I did a couple, like, tiny film things. But that yeah, the acting never fully took off for me, but the writing was kind of successful. I was able to sell a couple things. and In a sense, you were living the dream. I was living the dream, and I met everyone. I would just be at the most random. I Like, one night, I was at Prince's house. Prince, the singer, and oh, wow. his house in, in Beverly Hills, like he had, he had this gigantic house in Benedict Canyon. Like I was at his house and he performed in his backyard for three hours, you know, like that's the kind of thing that would happen all the time. Like oh. I would go just randomly to parties and Meryl Streep would be there. I literally met everyone and I was friends with movie stars, you know, like I actually went on vacations with movie stars. One of my best friends, best, best friends, got a, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And and so I lived this kind of Hollywood life. I traveled to New York and, and to Paris a lot. I went to I had connections in the fashion world. And so I, I would go to fashion weeks in, in New York and Paris all the time. And I would go to the shows and I would go to the parties. And that, it was really fun. You know, I loved doing it. It was like seeing the kind of beautiful art rock walking down the runway and it was exciting. And so I, I lived this life and traveled the world. I'd been everywhere, China, Beijing, Hong Kong, Bangkok. I mean, all over the world. I, I'd been everywhere through work. So I, I ended up becoming a production designer. After kind of the writing and the acting didn't fully pan out, I, I fell into production design and I started doing set design for fashion shoots. A lot of that took me to different parts of the world. In a sense, you're living the sort of life that so many people would wish to live. I mean, these are the magazines at the checkout lines in the grocery stores. You're actually designing the sets of these fashion models, and you're rubbing shoulders at these events that people are watching on TV with these super famous people. What else could you ask for in life? I mean, did you feel like you had it all? Yeah, I went to Paris Hilton's engagement party when she was engaged to Paris, the guy named Paris. They had an engagement party in Benedict Canyon, and I went to that. And and I was at Paris Hilton's house like several times for photo shoots, and we sh we shot her for different magazines. And I worked with everyone. I I worked with Oprah. I did a shoot with Oprah, and just many many people. And so this kind of life was really fun, and it was really sustaining to me for a long time. And 
and I enjoyed it. I thought it was kind of this wild ride and this, this kind of fun ride. And after kind of doing this for, I don't know, 15 years, I started to feel like the law of diminishing returns set in. And I started to right. feel like these parties and all of these things that I was doing and these things I was going to, you know, it would be at the HBO party after the Golden Globe. I just would be like, huh, like, is this what really life is really about? Is this what I'm doing for the rest of my life? It's just going to parties and hobnobbing <laughs> and right. just rubbing shoulders with everyone and meeting everyone. And is that really what my life is? Is this the purpose of my life? And what is the purpose of my life? What is the meaning of life? I mean, that was really kind of the underlying thing for me is like, I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid. I, you know, I want to know what the meaning of life was. Everyone wants to know that. And so even as a kid, I wanted to know what the meaning of life was. And I, you know, I looked for the meaning of life in so many things that weren't God. I read like Russian novels, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and, you know, all kinds. Of, I read Russian novels. I went to intense plays in, in New York and London by Harold Pinter and Tom Stoppard and Eugene O'Neill and like these incredible playwrights and David Mamet, who's not so great. Yeah, I just, would go to these incredible plays and think that I would get some kind of truth from it. And I was just thinking about a play the other day that I, that happened specifically where it just felt like, oh, yeah, like there's some truth here. And But then then there wasn't truth. It would just kind of vanish before, right when the curtain closed, it would be like, oh, wait, I still don't know the meaning of life. Like, that was really interesting, and there, there was a lot of kind of truth about the human condition, but I still don't know what the meaning of life is and why I'm here and where I'm going. So that was frustrating to me because um, I, I, I did that for years, too. I mean, for many, many years. I, I would go – every time I was in New York, I would literally go to the theater every night or, or London. I would go to the, a play every night, and that was kind of my my search for meaning and Another seminal moment in my life was in Paris. I was at Paris Fashion Week. I think it was 2009. Again, I was went to a lot of the, sh- the fashion shows, and they were amazing and and um, amazing designers. and And I went to the after parties and I went to dinners with the fashion crowd and blah blah blah. and and I remember I was at this, I was at Stella McCartney's party, Paul McCartney's daughter. She, she's a designer, fashion designer, clothing designer. And I went to her after party in, in, at this club in Paris. I remember being there and I was sitting at a table with Rachel Zoe and her husband, Roger, who are, Rachel Zoe is like a huge fashion stylist, designer too. Um, and I was just there and I was like, everyone in the fashion world was there. Music was playing, people were dancing, everyone was beautiful, and I was drinking champagne. And I remember standing, because I was on this upper deck of this club, and I was looking out over the the dance floor, and I just remember thinking, this is not going to do it for me anymore. I just felt really empty, and I felt really scared, because I, I thought, this is not the meaning of life, and this is not... I can't do this anymore. I can't just keep coming to these things. And so I actually just, I left that party without saying goodbye to anyone. I just kind of slipped out, took a cab back to my apartment in Paris that I had rented. And I was just up all night, just kind of really 
traumatized by this whole thing. I was like, what? This is not doing it for me anymore, and I don't know what I'm going to do for the rest of my life because this certainly isn't going to sustain me for the rest of my life. If you're somebody that hadn't reached that level, you would always have that desire in your heart pulling you towards higher and higher you know, levels of success and fame. But since you had already reached to the level of, of rubbing shoulders with these folks and attending all these parties, you were living the good life. Suddenly, there was this sense of dissatisfaction, like, hey, this is great, and each time I go, it's exciting, but then it didn't last. Or, I mean, I don't know. It, it, it seems like there's something else going on here. Well, there was. <laughs> <laughs> Little did I know, but so I, you know, I left Paris and I came back to LA, and and then you know I got back to LA and I got busy with my life again and kind of forgot about that experience of feeling empty, and because I got so busy with production design and you know all, just my life in LA um, and my friends and and I mean it was still there but it, it wasn't as potent and so I was back in LA, minding my own business, doing my thing. And six months later was the key moment in my life. And my best friend and I, the very big producer, huge, huge movie. Every weekend we would go to brunch and then we'd go, we would end up at this coffee shop in in Silver Lake in the east side of LA. That is kind of trendy kind of part of town. Okay. Uh, we would end up at this coffee shop called Intelligentsia, and this particular Saturday, we were there, and we noticed a group of people next sitting next to us, a group of young people, probably in their in their twenties, and there were Bibles on the table in front of them, which was a really weird thing to see in LA because I had never seen a Bible in LA in public. It was very strange. It was a strange sight to see, actually. And my, my friend, we both commented. We were both like, what is going on? And we thought it was just really weird and, and bizarre, that especially at this coffee place, which was such a kind of hipster hangout. Like, wh- who are these kids with Bibles? And then at a certain point, they closed their eyes and just started praying. And that was even more bizarre. I mean, my, my friend and I were just like, what is happening? You sound like an anthropologist studying a foreign species. <laughs> yes, it was very foreign. And so, so then everyone at the Christian table got up and left except this one guy, a guy named Henry. And he just, he just sat there by himself drinking coffee. And he just, I don't know if he was reading his Bible or whatever. And my friend, my best friend, was like, go ask him what they were doing. My friend liked to engage in kind of in conversation with people of different perspectives and with different perspectives. And so he just kept needling me to, to talk to this guy. And I was like, no, I'm not, I don't want to talk to him. Like, that's so embarrassing. And, uh, and finally, I, he convinced me. Finally, I turned around because he was right behind me. And I turned around and I said, hey, are you guys, are you guys like Christians or something? And he said, yeah. And I said, huh, okay. And we ended up getting into this conversation. And it lasted, I don't know, for a couple of hours. Wow. Um, 
maybe, maybe just an hour. I don't, it was a long conversation, but we got, we got into this conversation and I asked, tell me, what do you believe? Because I grew up Catholic. I don't, I don't really remember what, what is Christianity? Cause I don't remember <laughs> what it is. By the way, growing up, I just being gay, I always thought of Christians as the enemy. They were against who I was. So even my family members, I didn't, you know, my family members, they loved me, but I always felt this underlying alienation from them because I always felt like they didn't get me and they didn't understand who I was and they thought who I was was simple, blah, blah, blah. So Christians to me and to my friends were always kind of, they were the, the enemy. And I, and I knew I could never be a part of that club, even if I wanted to be, because I was gay. I was like, I, I can't be a Christian ever because I'm gay. And even if my family members are Christian and I believed, you know, I actually believed that their faith was real to them, which is kind of a weird thing, but I believed their faith was real to them, but I knew I could never be a part of that because I was gay. So I just rejected it. And so we talked to this guy, Henry, and he kind of lays out the gospel for me and tells me what he believes and the tenets of his, of his faith. And I, I'm like, oh, okay, interesting. And um, and then you know we get to, of course, the point where I ask the sixty-four thousand dollar question, and I and I said, well, what does your church believe about homosexuality? And he said, uh, well, it's you know it's a sin, and yeah, we believe the biblical view of, it, of sexuality and blah blah blah. And I was like, huh. And I, first of all, I was, <laughs> I was shocked that I didn't just get up and leave, number one. Number two, I was shocked that I was so kind of unfazed by that. Yeah. Because like even just a year before that or two years, ten years before that, two years, I would have just been like, dude, you're clearly delusional and you have problems and you need to get help. So I'll see you later. But wow. I was fascinated by it, and he, he he said, you know, why don't you just come check out my church um, next Sunday? And I was like, well, I don't know, maybe. And he we exchanged phone numbers, and so I had a whole week to kind of ponder this whole situation. <laughs> and and I, I was like, should I do this? Should I not? This is weird. And somehow the next Sunday... I don't know what happened, but I got out of bed, got ready, got in my car, and drove to this church, which meets in the auditorium of a, a public high school in Hollywood. And I just show up, and I had no idea what to expect, like zero. Because, you know, I was used to the Catholic church and, and all that. And so when I showed up to this church, quote, unquote, <laughs> I I just expected like a stained glass building, but it was like right. this, this this auditorium of a high school, and and there was no there were no decorations, there were no stained glass windows, there was you know nothing. And I go into the church or into this auditorium, and I the first thing I hear is the worship music. There's a band on on the stage playing worship music, and I immediately cringe because I'm like, oh, this is Christian music. I forgot about that. There's like, you know, <laughs> this is so kind of like, oh, like weird. And then I was like, and then it, after a few minutes, I was like, wait a minute, this is this is actually good. It's not weird at all. And and so then I found a seat. I sat kind of near the front. And after the worship, 
the worship lasted 30 minutes, and then the pastor came out, Tim Chaddock, who's amazing. Um, pastor Tim Chaddock came out, and he started preaching on Romans chapter 7. He, that's where they were. He was preaching through Romans, and he happened to be in Romans chapter 7, and, and he was preaching, and he pre- his sermons are an hour long. It was weird because while he was preaching, everything he was saying started to register as truth in my mind and in my heart. And I didn't know why. I was just like, wow, whatever he's saying is the truth. And I don't know why I believe that. Just, I mean, I was sitting on the edge of my feet and every word he was saying, I was like, yes, oh my gosh, like this is the gospel. Like it, it was the first time I had fully heard the gospel in a coherent, clear way uh, and I was like oh my gosh this is the gospel this is unbelievable and I just remember being riveted by the sermon and and then after the sermon there's another half hour of worship music so the service is two hours long which is long for a lot of people but it's not actually then after the sermon there's the prayer ministry and you can get prayed with if you want prayer for anything during the worship time. And he invited people to get prayed with if they wanted prayer for anything. And, and you know, I was kind of like, well, do I go ask for prayer? It's, just, it's so weird. If I go and nothing happens, I'll be humiliated. And it's embarrassing to walk over there to the side of the, this auditorium to, to ask someone for prayer. And then I just felt kind of almost like dragged over there, like prompted to go over there. And I went up to this guy and I said, I don't know what I believe, but I'm here. And he said, okay, let me pray for you. And he laid his hands on me and prayed for me. And it just seemed very loving and very intense. What he was saying and what he was praying was very intense and very, I was like, how does this like straight guy love me so much? Like the way he was just praying, I was like, it's crazy. And anyway, he finished praying for me, and I, I was, I thanked him, and I went back to my seat, and I got back to my seat. Worship music is, you know, still going, and I'm processing the sermon, I'm processing the prayer, I'm processing everything. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit just overwhelms me, and just floods. Like I, it was like Paul on the road to Damascus. All of a sudden, I just God was like this is who I am. And I was like, whoa. (laughs) And I just saw God, like God just revealed himself to me. And he was like, I, this is who I am. Jesus is real. I'm real. The resurrection is real. Eternal life is real. I've just adopted you into my kingdom. Wow. And I was just like, whoa. Like, and I just started bawling and bawling and bawling. Like for 20 minutes, I was like, crying the deepest cry I've ever cried since I was an infant. Just crying so hard that people were actually worried. Like, people sitting around me were worried about me. (laughs) I bet. (laughs) And so I was crying because of two things. I was crying because of the absolute holiness of God. I I had just been in the presence of the holiness of God. And so it was like Isaiah in the temple when he sees the holiness of God and he comes undone. And I just, like, fell apart because I saw the holiness of God. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. Like, this is amazing. And and I was also crying over my sin. I was just crying over 
my sin. And so it was this kind of double-edged cry, and and it just was so amazing. I mean, it was so cathartic, and and I and I just knew in that instant, I knew I knew that God was real and everything. Jesus was real, and that I believed everything in that moment. I absolutely. A hundred percent believed. There was like no doubt in my mind. After I cried for twenty five minutes, yeah, I get in my car and I somehow make it home. You know, I, I couldn't even see at this point. I was so like my eyes were so red. I got home and I got into bed to take a nap because I was so tired. I was so overwhelmed, and I got into bed and um, it happened again. The Holy Spirit just kind of revealed more God to me. And I just was like, oh, oh my gosh. And I jumped up out of bed and I was like, God, you have my whole life. Like, this is it. I was like crying again. I mean, just more tears. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't keep crying. I was like, God, you have my whole life. Like, it's yours. This is, it's done. Like, this is it. And in that moment, I also knew as clear as day, I knew that homosexuality was a sin. I knew that it was no longer a part of my life. I knew that it was not who I was. It wasn't my identity. It was a distortion of my identity. I knew that wasn't who I was. And I felt this complete relief from that. I felt like my identity was now in Christ and not in my sexuality. And I just felt just, yeah, just such relief and such, Clarity. I, mean, I finally, I finally discovered the meaning of life. Right, that's what you were looking for. Yeah, I was looking for the meaning of life, and now, so now, suddenly, I knew where I came from, what I was doing here, what my purpose here was, and where I was going. I knew that all in that split second, in a moment. Like it was crazy. The weeks after that was was crazy because I told my family members; they were all like crying and amazed and just couldn't believe it. And then I. And then I had to sit down all of my closest friends, you know, one at a time. And I, it took me like three weeks to do that, to sit wow. them down. We went to dinner and I told them, like, it was crazy. It was really nuts to say, I have to tell you something. And they're like, what? Are you moving? Like, did you buy a house? It was like, they had, and I'm like, no, I'm a Christian. <laughs> I have a secret to tell you. I'm a Christian. <laughs> How did they react? Did they, were they mad at you or what did they say? Um, most of them were supportive and loving about it. There were a couple of people that were um, a little bit hostile about it, especially about the, the gay issue. When they found out that I believed that it was a sin and I was no longer living that life, they there were a couple of, of my friends who reacted really badly to that, but subsequently have become very sweet about it and are very supportive of me. It was a crazy period because, I mean, telling your friends that is is a, is a, is a really crazy thing in, in Los Angeles. <laughs> that you are now a Christian and you're no longer living a gay life. That's just out there, yeah. So that was seven, eight years ago now. That was September twentieth, two thousand nine. Wow, was when I when when I got saved. I tell you what I love about your story is that that part when God comes down. You know, it seems like everyone around you is just sort of like a flawed, I don't know, member of the team, so to speak, like the people in the coffee shop, the 
the worship music, the sermon, which probably goes on too long, and it, and it, everyone everyone's just doing their their little part. But but then it's like the the moment that it happens for you is when God Himself just sort of like says, "You, you're here. I want you." And he he just shows you in a way that Becky Cook can understand. He like communicates to your soul almost. That is incredible. Yeah, it was a truly uh, a deus ex machina. I don't know if you know what that is, but, you know, in Greek plays where deus ex machina means... Um, uh, God from the machine? God from the machine. And yeah. it's the machine that would descend and kind of resolve the play. And it's like, I, it's, it's funny because I would, you know, I would go to the theater all the time looking for, basically looking for God. And then I go to the church and God just <laughs> like deus ex machina. Like God comes down... And just reveals himself, and it's like, whoa, yeah. So it was the true day. It's like fuck it up, yeah. It's just so beautiful. And what I love about how you uh, recount this is, it gives so much glory to God. It just makes me want to love Him even more. But let's talk about some common questions because you must have really stirred up a lot of confusion. Continuing your in your job as a production designer, also now growing in your Christianity. What are some common questions that, that people bring up to you and challenge you with? When I'm on the set of photo shoots, I, I just tell everyone about Jesus and the gospel. I just, you know, and the first, invariably, the first question I get is, it's always, it always goes to sexuality immediately. I was on a shoot recently, and the photographer is from New York, and he, he I had worked with him before, and he, he said, what, what have you been up to? And I said, oh, well, you know, I'm in seminary now. I go to Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, and, you know, I'm in my third year of seminary, and, I, you know, I'm a Christian now. And he's like, he looked at me, <laughs> he looked at me, and he said, he literally said, you can't be Christian and gay. <laughs> and I was like, David, that's the first thing you asked me? I just told you that I, I met God and that I'm a Christian. And that's your first question is is about my sexuality. You're not interested in what it's like to know God or what were God's eternal decrees? What are God's attributes? Like what? That's your first question is, and it's everyone's first question. It's right. like, oh, well, what about your, you know, can you be gay? That's a huge question I get all the time. And I told this photographer this. I said, listen, I said, the Bible is not a handbook on homosexuality. It's the greatest love story ever told. And you're missing the forest for the trees. And I said, I will get to that answer. I'm not going to answer you right now, but I'm going to answer you at the end of the shoot in, in a few more days. You know, I explained it to him. I said, you know, this, this is not God's design sexual ethic. The biblical sexual ethic is very specific, and this is not arbitrary. It's not random. It's, this is for purpose, and it's for human flourishing. And, and, you know, I explain all the aspects of it, but I get that a lot. Like, you know, why can't you be gay and a Christian? And I'm like, well, it's, you know, pretty clear in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation what God's sexual ethic is and why it is that way. And, and it's, it's so, it's like abundantly clear. You know, I I have a relationship with the king of the universe and you know, like Paul, I count everything as lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Like I, 
think Francis Chan says this sometimes. He says, you know, like if if the Bible said all Chinese men had to stand on their head for the rest of their lives, he's like, I would do that. And it's like, yeah, that's how I feel. Like I have a relationship with the king of the universe. And if he says that this is wrong, I believe him. Maybe because right. we have a personal, intimate relationship. And I don't want to violate that relationship. And I'm in a covenant with him now. And I don't want to violate that. And I, I'm not interested in that anymore. And and then that's the second question people, you know, I get this often too. It's like, well, isn't it unfair that you don't get to have a, a partner for the rest of your life or you don't get to be in a relationship for the rest of your life? And right. I'm like, but I do have a partner. I have Jesus Christ. And I have a relationship, and it's the most incredible relationship in the universe. And what's unfair is that Jesus Christ had to be brutally beaten, tortured, and crucified for my sin. That's unfair. What's unfair is that Jesus, God, before the foundations of the earth, chose me to be in his kingdom. Like, that's what's unfair is God saved me from eternal punishment as someone who, a rebel against God. I was a rebel against God for years. And not just because of the sexuality thing, but because of everything, my whole life. Where, yeah. I mean, everyone's a rebel until they submit to God. And when people say, isn't it unfair? I'm just like, I'm like, dude, <laughs> the most incredible relationship of all time. Jesus never cheats on me. Like my, all my boyfriends cheated on me. Jesus never cheats on me. He's right. always faithful. He's always there. He's trustworthy. He's true. He's perfect. He's righteous. He's holy. Like, I can't say that about any of my ex-boyfriends. So I don't see anything about this that's unfair. So, yeah, that's another question I get. I also, you know, people ask me, like, oh, are you straight now? And it's all about sex. It's like, well, what are you? I still struggle with same-sex attraction, although I have to say, you know, the day I got saved, if my libido was at 100%, ah. <laughs> it's now, it went down to like 10%. Wow. And of course, Satan is listening to our rebuke of the Jesus. But I, I'm not attracted to women. I don't desire women in a sexual way, but I'm not overwhelmed by same-sex attraction. It's not something that dominates my thought life and I don't miss relationships with men. I don't miss that life at all. Like, I don't miss it at all. Um, it's a very dark, destructive life. And I, I went through it all. And my friends, there is so much destruction and so much multiple, multiple partners and just crazy stuff going on. Well, you traded up. It's not like you quit having love in your life. You found something more worthwhile, something something better, something that was more satisfying. Yeah, I, I found something infinitely more satisfying and, and better. Yeah. Is there any other questions? I mean, people, you know, people are always like, well, aren't you born gay? Like, isn't this... Right, yeah. That's a big one. People want to know about that. Just because Lady Gaga says that doesn't mean it's true. She's not a scientist. <laughs> even scientists don't even think that. They First of all, there's two things. Number one... No scientist worth his or her salt would say that you're born gay. It, there's a there's a myriad of factors. It's like there are environmental factors, there's hormonal factors, there's possibly genetic factors that go into it. Secondly, even if a scientist discovered today in the New York Times, there was an article that said a scientist discovers a gay gene, I would be like, so what? 
because we're all born broken, we're all born in sin. It doesn't matter if it's genetic or not. It's we're all born in sin. And but that was like the particular sin I was born into. And yeah, I'm born attracted to people that I'm not married to. You know, that's something that I struggle with as well. Yeah. Straight guys are attracted to multiple women. So we're all born in this kind of sinful state. And yeah, it's just kind of this idea of like, oh, you're born that way, therefore. Yeah, well, I think a lot of times people ask, well, didn't God make me this way? And that's leaning very much on the doctrine of creation, but there's also the doctrine of the fall. You know, so yeah, God did create us, but we're fallen, and we all manifest that fallenness in different ways. We all have different propensities. You know, some people are like really struggle with lying or or drug addiction or any number of other things. And maybe there's a genetic component, maybe not. I'm not a scientist either. So, but it doesn't change the fact that God will empower us to overcome if we trust in Him. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, that's a moot point to me. The yeah. whole kind of whether I was born gay or not, it, it's, yeah. it's all moot. It's like, it doesn't matter. I'm, I was born in sin and, and God redeemed me. Like, yeah. for, that's it. End of story. Well, and you're such a testimony because you're, what you're saying is that your sexuality doesn't define you. What you're saying is that God is better than whatever fame that you can achieve in this world or whatever, the two things you mentioned before that you and your friends were after, making a mark on the world and finding true love. And it's like, you found true love. And it wasn't where you expected it, but God pursued you. And it seems like as soon as you were open to God, he just like came down on you. And he's like, I've been waiting for that. And then as far as making a mark, you're doing it now. Like you mentioned to me before we started the recording, you you recorded this eight minute video and your testimony is out there and people are trying to shut it down. But this message is getting out that doesn't matter where you come from or what your background is, or if you struggle with same sex attraction, or if you're transgender or whatever, like... God wants you, and He can empower you to be holy. We all need His grace to do that. Yeah, and what a lot of people don't understand about Christian conversion is that it's supernatural. And when it happens, God puts His Holy Spirit in you and gives you supernatural power to live the life that He wants you to live and to be conformed to the image of Christ. Like It's, right. it's, it's crazy. It's not just like, oh, I'm going to just you know decide to deny myself right now and, and live this, like, stoic life. It's like, no, 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 you have the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you this. What's your life been like since 2009 going forward? It's been amazing. It's been the best seven and a half years of my life. I just wake up in awe of God and His holiness and His grace on me and that He just has so much grace on me. And I continue doing production design and still do. But three and a half or four years ago, I just felt God, this strong, strong calling to go to seminary. And it was crazy. Like, I felt like I was on the train to seminary, and I couldn't get off. And it, and there was, like, the door was shut. Like, I could not get off this train. And I had one of the pastors at my church pray for me. And I said, you know, I think I'm supposed to go to seminary, but I'm not sure. Can you pray for me? And he prayed for me, and he prayed for me. And and then we, we talked later, and he said, yeah, he said, he said I think God is going to pay through your seminary, and that's going to be confirmation that you're supposed to be there. Cut to three years later, 
I haven't spent a penny on seminaries. God wow. has paid for all of it, huh. uh, including my books, including my school supplies. And because I was, you know, I was freaking out. I was like, if I go to seminary, I'm going to have to turn down all these jobs. Right. My first month of seminary, I had to turn down a job, a month-long shoot that I was going to be on that I was going to make thirty grand on. Wow. I had to turn down $30,000. And I was like, I was in my car just bawling. and. <laughs> how I can't do this. I can't turn down all this money and like go to seminary. This is crazy. And he's just like, be quiet. <laughs> I got he's like, be still. Be, just be still and know that I am God. And then of course he, you know, comes through like a champ and like I, he just, everything is paid for. And wow. he paid for, yeah, he paid for school. It's crazy. I'm almost done. I have one more. So where do you see yourself going in the future? Are you looking to enter the ministry or to uh, go for uh, further study? Or what do you sense God's calling you to? (laughs) No, not further study. I'm ready to be done. (laughs) Okay. I mean, I love love what I'm learning, but it's just, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of stress. Different people, different pastors and different people have spoken this into my life and have said this. And it's what I feel like God is calling me to do as well. And it's, it's, it's doing exactly what I'm doing right now. It's, I think God is calling me to help the church understand this issue. Yeah. Biblically, theologically, culturally, personally. Obviously, this is the issue of our day. Many, many Christians obviously are starting to cave into culture and to believe that this is no longer a sin somehow. And I just feel like this is what God is calling me to do is to, to travel around the country and around the world and, and help Christians and, and even, you know, help non-believers too, but help mostly the church understand this issue in a fully orbed way and help them to see the blind spots that they're not seeing. Like, for example, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in exile in Babylon. In, in the Old Testament, you know, in the book of Daniel, these three Jewish guys were in exile in Babylon, and um, they loved the, the Lord. They loved God. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, built this golden statue and commanded that everyone, all the officials in Babylon come and bow down to the statue. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew the first commandment that God said, you shall not, you shall have no other gods before me. And right. you shall not bow down to any carved images or blah, blah, blah. And so they refused to bow down to this golden statue. And they knew what the consequences were. They knew that they would go into a fiery pit to a furnace. They knew that they were going to be thrown into a furnace if they didn't obey this commandment by Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't, compromise their convictions and compromise their faith by one iota. They just, they were like, no, we are not going to do this. We know what God said, and we're not going to compromise his word. And so they ended up getting, you know, thrown into a fiery furnace. But of course, you know, the rest of the story, they came out unsinged, unscathed, and they didn't burn. And, and by the way, this deception has been going on since the garden, you know, like, Satan twisted God's word to Eve. He said to Eve, he said, are you sure God really said you can't have any fruit from any tree? And he's saying the same thing to Christians today. 
and he's saying, are you sure God really said that homosexuality is a sin? Like, there's so many, you know, it's really vague and can't right. be sure about it. And, of course, Satan is just, like, laughing his head. He's, he's laughing all the way to the bank. Christians are buying it, just hook, line, and sinker. They're just buying this lie that Satan is throwing at them, that the culture is throwing at them, that this is no longer. Somehow, like, in the last 30 years, this, like, happens to no longer be a sin. Like, it just, it somehow vanished from the Bible. You know, and I say this all the time, it's like the culture, every television show, every movie, everything on social media, every song is basically telling you a lie. The narrative is a, is a, is a false narrative. And so I'm always, I always say this when I, you know, when I talk, I'm like, if you watch an hour of television, you need to then read the Bible for an hour because <laughs> you've just been lied to for an hour and now you need the truth for an hour. And that's the thing. It's like we're just inundated with everything right now. We're inundated with lies all day long. Yeah. And, and we've got to just go back to the Word of God and just listen to it and read yeah. it and, and, yeah. and just digest it. And, and you know, it's got to inform the way we live our lives. Because if we start listening to the culture – and it's, we're, de- we're dead. Like, it's over somehow. Huh. Um, yeah. God saved me out of that life. And now he's like, okay, now I, I'm equipping you in seminary. And now I'm, you're going to go out and you're going to go help people understand this issue. Yeah. And from every angle. And, and I'm going to help you. That's what I've been doing. And that's what I think I'm going to continue doing until yeah. my dying breath. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's there's something about two things. One, the joy of the Lord is evident in your heart. And I think that's so powerful because when you talk about Christ, you do it with a smile and you do it with a heart full of laughter and wholeness and joy. And the other thing is that you are so qualified to speak on this subject because it's your own experience. It's something that you know inside and out. You you know before, during, and after me, I'll just speak of myself, as a pastor, it's it's easy for me to teach what the Bible says on something and to, and to do it in a compassionate yet faithful way, but I can't say, oh, I've been there, and this is what it feels like, and Jesus is better, whereas you can. And so I feel like that's really just a phenomenal equipping that God has enabled you to speak to this issue, and this is such an issue and there's such complexity to it because, I mean, especially with the trans subject now really getting a lot of press and in, in, in these bathroom laws and all this, and it's like, well, what is the faithful yet compassionate approach to this issue, or whatever the next one will be? I'm really excited to see how your ministry grows and develops. I just have one last question. So I, I was Googling your name a little bit, and there's actually a BeckettCook.com website. I'm sure you knew that. And in the description of your website, it says the official website of Beckett Cook, and then it dash author of the book, all of a sudden, how an unsuspecting gay man encountered God. And it's like, does this book exist? Yeah, that book is... is uh, Will it exist someday, or should I edit this out, or what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I haven't... You know, I'm still finishing up that book. Okay. Um, I'm about... It's like 20 chapters long. And wow. Um, I have like a few chapters left to write. I hope to God willing to have it done by the end of the summer. 
and then hopefully get a publisher and get it published. And awesome. uh, so, yeah, <laughs> that's a little premature right now. <laughs> well, I wasn't sure because it was, you know, when you click on your website, there is no information. But on the Google little description of your website, there's the title of this very uh, interesting looking book. <laughs> so... That's probably a, a, a very smart marketing strategy, whether you did it on purpose or by accident. I didn't even know that was there. I, yeah. I didn't set this up. My friend set it ah, up. Ah, okay. And I didn't even know he did that. It's yeah. Really, I, I had no idea he put that in there. Well, I already want to pre-order this thing, and it's not even done being written yet. So <laughs> we'll have to wait and see what happens with that. But thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today and talk with me. Of course. Thank you for having me on. Well, wasn't that great? If you would like to get in touch with Cook or book him to speak at your church or event, you can visit him online at beckettcook.com. That website he's planning on developing, and there's not much there now other than a link to his Facebook and his Twitter where you can get in touch with him, or email him at beckett at beckettcook.com and get in touch with him that way. Also, he has a great talk at Biola from 2014 on YouTube that I'll link in the show notes. And if this subject interests you, if you'd like to watch testimonies about Christians who've left the gay or lesbian lifestyle, I've included a number of them in the show notes. You can get those at restitutio.org. That's like restitution with no N, dot O-R-G. And I have on there links to Rosaria Butterfield, Caleb Kaltenbach, Jackie Hill, Christopher Yuan, Wesley Hill, and Sam Albury. Uh, these are all very different stories. In fact, Caleb Kaltenbach doesn't himself struggle with same-sex attraction, but he grew up with not two, but three gay parents and ended up becoming a pastor. So lots of different stories here, and these are the kinds of stories that you're not hearing about in our culture today. And these voices need to be heard, especially if you are a Christian and you're interested in this subject, because there's not just one side of this issue, and it is possible to be faithful to Scripture be compassionate, be loving, and not compromise on God's sexual ethics. So check that information out. Also, I just wanted to read out, we got a review in the iTunes store from Jacob Rohr titled, Engaging, Convicting, and Enlightening. He writes, this podcast is tremendous. From the off-script shows to the interviews and to the apologetic material with honest theological reflection throughout all of it, Restitutio provides quality dialogue on important issues within the Christian faith and issues the Christian faces. In addition, unlike other podcasts, Restitutio provides shows with no commercial or advertisement interruption. I look forward to listening to Restitutio for a long time. Thank you so much, Jacob, for that awesome review. I, I don't know if we'll be commercial free forever. Who knows, right? But as it is right now, we've got over a hundred episodes out and we are still commercial free, but thanks for writing that. If you don't mind taking the time to share this episode on social media or review us in iTunes, we certainly would appreciate that. It helps to get the word out and, and get people tuned in. So thanks so much for listening today and Check us out online at restitutio.org, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.